Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Hey, this is where each week we take 48 minutes to examine the value of our work. And we know work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck. Nobody wants that. Work's our best opportunity to live out our calling and to create the legacy we want to leave behind. This week, I've got some questions about calling or feeling led. And you guys throw me these spiritual hardballs. We'll jump right in there with some of those and more. And we're going to talk about my encouragement. Don't be a common man. Here's some of the questions we've got that we're going to address. How can I resell some books I bought cheaply? And then one says, yeah, I felt led to become a high school teacher, but I don't, but I know I can't support my family. Someone says, Dan, my work is stealing my soul, impacted my confidence. Is it okay to leave without a new job? Dan, how would you encourage the 25 year old who has had a different job each year since graduation and can't seem to find their dream career? Dan, is it smart to take a position making less money if it makes you happy. Well, there you go. Just those lightweight questions. You know, what we do in our work is important. It is more than just making a paycheck. It's not just one little insignificant part of our life where if we have everything else in place, we can just kind of do whatever. We spend too much time doing work to have it be something inconsequential something that doesn't matter. Now, granted, there are times when your work and and your work should never be the primary focus of who you are and it shouldn't define what you're all about. I mean, I hate that kind of mentality. What do you do? Well, I'm an attorney or I'm a dentist or I'm a ditch digger. I'm a truck driver. You know, there's more to a person than just what they do. We ought to have more of a response when somebody says, what do you do? than just telling them what our occupation is. You know, if you're a dentist, you, you, you may say, I work with people who have low self-esteem and transform the feeling that they have about themselves when they're in public. Wow, that opens a conversation. Gee, what do you do? You know, you're a fashion designer? Well, no, I happen to be a dentist, but this is what, how I do that. Our work ought to be more than just a paycheck. And you know, it's fun in, in the position where I've uh, kind of positioned myself in being somebody who talks about these issues every day, I have the wonderful experience of hearing from people over and over and over again who really are finding or creating work that is more than just a paycheck. So we're going to be talking about that. How can you do that? Now, here's a quotation for us today to start off. This comes from Professor Dean Alfang, maybe Alfange, born back in 1899. He says this, I've got this in, in the beginning of the study guide that I just created for Wisdom Meets Passion. My new book, I've created a study guide already. I'll be teaching that as a college course starting in January. And we're getting a lot of requests for study materials to go with that book already, just out of the gate, just released on the 28th of this month. So it's very, very new. But I've got this in the very first part, in the introduction, this quotation that says, I do not choose to be a common man. It is my right to be uncommon if I can. I seek opportunity 
not security. I do not wish to be a kept citizen, humbled and dulled by having the state look after me. I want to take the calculated risk to dream and to build, to fail and to succeed. I refuse to barter incentive for a dole. I prefer the challenges of life to the guaranteed existence, the thrill of fulfillment to the state calm of utopia. I will not trade freedom for beneficence, nor my dignity dignity for a handout. I will never cower before any master, nor bend to any threat. It is my heritage to stand erect, proud, and unafraid, to think and act for myself, enjoy the benefit of my creations, and to face the world boldly and say, this I have done. Now, boy, we, we could stop right there. You, you know, you could do an entire course on that quotation. You could write a political book. You could write a theological book. You could write an ethics book based just on the concepts in that one quotation. But just keep that in mind this week. I do not choose to be a common man. I seek opportunity, not security. I do not wish to be a kept citizen, humbled and dulled by having the state look after me. Well, we'll just stop with that. I do not choose to be a common man. That's going to be our theme. Everything that I talk about, certainly in the way that I answer questions, leads to being not uncommon. Don't be normal. Be weird. Be different. Normal is not attractive. The worst thing that our kids could ever do when they were growing up is to come home and say, well, dad, everyone else is doing it. Uh Uh-huh. If everyone else is doing it, it's probably not worth doing. So look for opportunities to be uncommon. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for your uh, continued support of the uh, the podcast. You know, people pick it up in so many different places. We're having a hard time keeping track of how people listen to it. You know, leave me a note in the podcast notes. You, if you go to forty eight days dot com, go to the podcast. There are you can leave a comment there. I'm going to be putting more notes there. Incidentally, um, people are asking for you know some of the links that I reference, and I haven't been very good about doing that. So I'm going to be adding more things in the podcast notes. But you can also go there to leave any kind of comment that you want. But tell me how you're listening to the podcast. People listen on Stitcher and iTunes and other places. You know, rank it on those those places as well, if you would. That helps keep us there at the top under careers. I appreciate that. But let me know how you're listening to us. That would help us out as well. Because I'm, I'm forever asking our web team for stats. And they're saying, Dan, you know, we can't determine some of these things. There are too many options out there. It's hard to track, and I'm forever driving them crazy with wanting information, feedback about what we're doing, where we're gaining, those kind of things. Well, I want to I want to address just a couple quick questions. I'm I'm doing a lot of interviews for Wisdom Meets Passion, my new book, and one of the things that people often ask is, you know, Dan, should I just focus on earning a living, or should I pursue my passion and find work that I love? Well, obviously, my answer is do both. I mean, pursuing your passion releases the very best talents and enthusiasm you have to offer, and money will show up in unexpected ways. So don't just focus on earning a living, but also don't think that because you pursue your passion and look for work that you love that you're then not going to be able to earn a living. Now, some of the questions today deal with that, and I'll be addressing that a little bit more, but expect to do both. I mean, one of Stephen Covey's greatest principles was we tend to very quickly look for either or solutions rather than and. Well, I want to you know, make a lot of money and be in work that I love. Well, why wouldn't you expect to be able to do both of those? Or, you know, I want to have a nice car, but I don't want to have a car payment. 
Well, do both. Look for and solutions and many of the things that are being posed to me in interview questions, I come, my response has to do with look for and solutions. People are asking what the writing process was like for me to do this with Jared. Now, Jared is 34 years old. He's my second son, second of three children. And people said, well, I know that you as the author had him come in and add his responses at different places. But then I assume that you went back through and took out everything that you didn't agree with. And, and the question kind of took me by surprise because, frankly, I had never even thought about that. Never once did I think about, well, ooh, I don't agree with this, so I have to take it out since it's going to be primarily my book. I, I, it was never that kind of thing. Inasmuch as Jared and I live very different lifestyles, I mean, he chooses to live in Mombasa, Kenya. They're back over there now, uh, just um, well, just getting there as I speak on this particular podcast, but he lives there. They live in in a country where there's not the infrastructure that we're used to here. There's not you know, city fire police protection. There's not the kind of access to medical support. There's not garbage collection like there is here. I mean, it's still the wild, wild west in many ways. I mean, I choose not to live there. Jared thrives in that kind of unpredictability, the thrill of being right on the edge of disaster or danger at any given time. Now, it's not just that I'm looking for safety and comfort, but there are certainly many things that are different about us in lifestyle, and there, there will continue to be. If you see Jared and see me, you'll recognize that we're different in some other ways as well. I mean, he has a whole lot of tattoos, and I, at this point in my life, don't have any. Now, the discussion has come up, and we joke about it, and I'm not saying that I never will, but at this point, I don't. But anyway, we're very different in a lot of ways in terms of lifestyle. However, in terms of our core beliefs and values, we're identical. So in writing the book, Wisdom Meets Passion Together, even though we wanted the different generational approaches, yeah, we want to emphasize the distinctions of the different generations. The Gen Y generation coming into the workplace is very, very different than the baby boomers. They don't have the same kind of work ethic. They're more interested in relationships than they are you know, upward mobility in their career. You know, they don't want to be a boss. They don't want to be a supervisor over their peers. They want to just hang out and have fun. Even if they don't make as much money, there's a whole lot of things that are different. And we emphasize those in the book, but in terms of beliefs and values, no, there were no differences at all. No, no surprises. One of the interview questions I got yesterday was how would you encourage someone who has worked in the same job for 30 years, hates it, but doesn't know what else to do? Well, recognize there are options. Nobody's trapped. It doesn't matter what the economy is or if we're in a recession or a robust economic cycle. It doesn't matter. I mean, when it comes right down to it, your life is going to be determined by the decisions you make. Nobody's trapped. So there are other options if you want to exercise those. But the first thing to do is not just look for an escape route, not just look for who's hiring, where the best opportunities are, what the hottest franchises are. No, look inward. 85% of the process of having the confidence of proper direction in your career comes from looking inward. Look inward. Look at what you already know about yourself. What are your skills and abilities that are unique? What kind of environments do you thrive in? What's your personality? What are your values and dreams? I mean, those are things that help you identify what you ought to have as a clear focus. So that's the first thing to do. And in doing that, you ought to be able to very quickly start to see, okay, it would be in doing this kind of work that it in integrates and blends those things I know about myself. 
So that's what you do. And I know a lot of times working in a job that you hate for a long period of time, you know, it's almost like the frog in the kettle. You know, that little analogy that we use where we're told if you put a frog in hot water, he'll jump out. But if you put him in lukewarm water and slowly turn up the heat, he'll sit there and cook to death. Now, I don't know if that's scientifically true, but the point is well taken in that a lot of people I see, they just sat there. The changes were slow and subtle and they sat there till now they're cooking to death and feel like there's no escape hatch for them at all. So look inward, make a decision. And then another one, and then I'll move on into some of the questions from today's listeners. But how would you encourage the 25-year-old who has had a different job each year since graduation and can't seem to find their dream career? My encouragement is be patient, enjoy the journey, don't negate the value of what you're going through. That process of going through different jobs is part of the clarification process. That's something you can't do just in a vacuum. You can't do that just in a classroom or just in reading a book. You've got to get out here and get in the game. So that's cool. Man, if you're 25 and you've had eight different jobs, you're right on track. Enjoy the process. But don't underestimate the value of what that should be teaching you. Be observant. What is it that you do best? What kind of environment do you function best in? Where do you do your best work? What is it that makes your heart sing? Where is it that you are in the zone? We talk about athletes being in the zone. Where is it that you are in the zone? Is it when you're working with a lot of people around? Is it when you're working with young people, old people, animals, ideas rather than people? Get a, get a sense of what it is that really fits you well. That's the value of those early experiences. This is not just a haphazard, you know, walk in a park and hope that someday you find something that really fits. Every job, every experience ought to be helping you in the clarification process. So don't negate the value of the journey. Pay attention. Well, Jeff, Jeff asked, Dan, I hope you're well. I'm so excited about reading your new book. Quick question for you. I recently acquired 260 copies of a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Now, Jeff sent me the link to that. He said, I would love to make at least a dollar each and not have to pay for shipping. Any thoughts on where I could unload them? There are already a lot on Amazon selling very cheaply, so I don't feel like that's the proper route. I have already contacted the publisher. They're not interested in buying them back even cheaply because it's out of print. It was published in 2007. I've contacted the author. They're not interested either. Let me know if I should fire up the fireplace. Thanks, Jeff. Well, I, I did check on Amazon. Yeah, you can, it is out of print. It's an out of print book. It was a good book. I mean, I read the book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. This happens to be the study group, the group study edition. So it's a little bit different. And I suspect that it has a little less value as a standalone since it is intended to be used in a group. So you have 260 copies of these puppies and you can buy them brand new on Amazon starting at $1.80. There are 141 of them that are used starting at one penny. Now, a lot of people put books up for a penny on Amazon and they charge you $3.99 for shipping, which is pretty standard. Well, shipping doesn't actually cost you that much. You can ship media mail for maybe $1.20. So if you charge $3.99, you're still going to make a couple bucks on shipping. That's what that's why people sell a lot of books for a penny. So you can do that. But anyway, Jeff wants to make a little bit on his book. I have no idea how much you paid Jeff, but I hope you didn't pay more than a dollar for the books that you got. But 
I'm, I'm delighted you're in the game. I love it when I hear from people like you who you know, do things like this. Get in there. Go to a garage sale. I bought at a, at a garage sale one time. It was actually one of the Dave Ramsey yard sales back years ago when they used to do these. They'd set up like at the fairgrounds and, you know, have 300 people set up booths and somebody had a booth there. It was one of the publishers, one of the local publishers. They had a booth. A couple kids were working it. And I walked by and was talking to him and he says, hey, how about if you just give me a hundred bucks for everything I've got here? And I said, are you serious? He says, yeah. I says, done. Don't let anybody else look at anything. Done. Well, he had to make a couple phone calls to verify that, but in fact did that. I bought 700, I think it was 786 books for a hundred dollars. Well, we had a lot of fun with that. I mean, I had books that I used as giveaways and we sold lots of those. I probably made my money, money back 10 times over, but I'm in a position to do that where we are already selling books so we can add in a lot of other things. And that kind of relates to my response to you, Jeff, on these I've never promoted just one book like this. When you have one book, it's really tough to sell that because it's so easy to compare pricing and recognize you can buy them for a penny out there. What I do is offer books like this as an add-on once somebody has purchased something else. So I'll buy books like this, and I've done it many, many times just like you have. Buy 260 of them for, let's say, $260, so you get a dollar piece in them. So I show that the book originally sold for twelve ninety nine or whatever it is. And today you can get it for $8 since you already bought these other products from us. I mean, we have things set up in our shopping cart that are like that. So I sell a lot of books like this for 6 or $8. Well, at that point, depending on what I paid for them, I'm making 5 or $6. That's way more than the author is ever going to make on a royalty in the back end of a book. So it's a good business deal for me. So we sell lots of them, but, but again, I'm not selling a standalone book, one book. It's an add-on item. So if somebody is already in our store at 48 days, they're already putting things in their shopping cart, so to speak, virtually, then it's easy to get them to add something else in. It's, and, and again, as a standalone, it's just too tempting to jump on Amazon, see what they're selling for there. Now, Jeff, I happen to know that you're part of Big Daddy Weave, the great group you know musical group that travel around you've got merchandise tables set up and if i recall right you're in charge of the merchandise tables you know you have your personalized drumsticks and the other things you're doing man put those puppies out on a on a table with a bunch of other things make a package you know tonight only you get these four things for 10 bucks you know put it together I mean, we just gave away gift bags in my book release party that we just had attendees there got now listen to this now this is different even with the galley copies that we sent out for Wisdom Meets Passion, we sent those out. A galley copy just means a little unperfected, unproofed paperback copy of what the book will ultimately look kind of like. You send those out to media people about six months in advance. When we sent those out, we sent them out with a little black velvet bag with one of Ke- Jared's Keza necklaces inside there. So it just makes it stand out. But now here's what people got the other night at my book release party. The people who were in attendees there got two copies, autographed copies of Wisdom Meets Passion and Ubuntu medallion. Jared designed a medallion. It's an inch and a half round Ubuntu. It's done like a coin in Rwanda where there's a hole right in the center. So we have a special cord that goes through there with some beads on it. But everybody got two copies of Wisdom Meets Passion, that beautiful Ubuntu medallion, which we show as a $37 retail value, some peppermint candies, a bookmark, a card explaining Ubuntu, and a little box of killer toffee. So we just make it creative. That's what you're going to have to do. Don't fire up the fireplace. No, 
I commend you on doing what you're doing. Just get creative as you are in other things that you're already doing and you'll find a home for these great little books. Don't waste your life. I'm sure some of you have, have great ideas beyond, way beyond what I uh, just addressed there. But, you know, how do you sell your own books? Again, I'm, I'm in that process right now. I mean, most authors write a book, send a manuscript to the publisher, and then they you know, park in, in a lawn chair by the mailbox waiting on those royalty checks to come in and are disappointed at what they usually get. I mean, I'm totally in the game. I mean, we are already, I mean, the book release was yesterday on Wisdom Meets Passion. Jared and I have already done the audio on it. We've already done another 44-minute audio on additional stories that are not in the book and tips about how to find your passion. I've already done a 67-page study guide that I'll expand that into the college course that I'll be doing shortly. I mean, we're creating products around that. So here's the deal. If the book makes me nothing, I still expect to make a million dollars over the course of, let's say, the next five years with that book, with that book content, because of the ancillary things that we're going to do around that. Now, how do you sell your own books? Am I just waiting and hoping the publisher does? No. I mean, now um, on the 29th of this month, that'll be a little bit, uh, I'm actually recording this on the 29th. So this afternoon, I'm going to be on with my buddy Dave Ramsey on his radio show. We got a special package, a killer package we put together with, again, things that can't be purchased from Amazon or any other place. So we put together some things. Well, I expect to sell a whole lot of books this afternoon when I'm on with Dave. And uh, next week, I'll tell you how that went. Um, This last month, well, in the September issue of Success Magazine, there's a full-page review of Wisdom Meets Passion. In the next month, in the October issue, which is already online, there is a wonderful, wonderful article on Wisdom Meets Passion done by my good friend, editor at Success Magazine, Aaron Casey. Now, those are things, not things that I paid for. Those are not things the publisher paid for. Those are things that are based on relationships. Now, this goes, this relates to uh, my, my friend Mike Hyatt's book, Platform, where if you want to sell a lot of books, create your own platform. What are you doing? You don't just come out of nowhere with a good manuscript and sell a lot of books. You create a platform, and then when the book comes out, you call in your cards, so to speak. I mean, we had we had a, a pretty power-packed room the other night when we had the book release party. People like Mike and Gail Hyatt were there. We're grateful for that. My publisher, Matt Bowker, was there with the whole PR team from Thomas Nelson. They were there as well. Gals were helping you know, set up and taking care of the guests and all. Uh, we had um, Dr. Gretchen Campbell, who's a noted neurologist, was there. Uh, Joel and Pay Bogus, Dr. Pay from Dallas, were there. We had people drive down from uh, Michigan. Randall Mark Olson drove down with his wife from Michigan to join us for the night. Uh, we had people in the media were there taking photographs and doing interviews. Um, Jeff Mosley, head of one of the record label companies that handles people like Mercy Me and others, you know, was there. But, you know, we, we pulled together people that we've established relationships with over years. That's how you sell books. And then we seed the market. We don't hand there, stand there with a book held tight to our chest and saying, you give me 20 bucks and I'll let you see what's inside here. No, you know my style. You know, we're going to seed the market. 
you know, giving away books left and right right now to get them with people who are sneezers, movers and shakers. September 27th, I'm going to be doing radio interviews. Got somebody setting that up, radio interviews all day long. When I talk about radio interviews all day long, I'm talking about, you know, hopefully I'll have 18 or 20 radio interviews set up just back to back to back. And hopefully in that mix, things like NPR and others like that. Got people like Chris Gillibu, you know, author of The $100 Startup and The Art of Nonconformity. You know, Chris is a big fan. Of, he mean willing to promote my materials. He's talking it up. Other people are writing blogs, comments. We created some little contests for people. If they let us know that they did a blog or a review in some way, we'll give them some other kind of bonuses. So a whole bunch of things that we're doing to sell books, but you can do it on a small scale. You can do it on a large scale. You can do it on selling other people's books or products of any kind, or you can do it with your own. Just have fun in the process. Well, let me jump, let me jump on here. Justin says, Dan, I've read the 48 days book twice, felt led to become a high school teacher. Now this is one of those tough zinger questions here. Bear with me because you're going to hear my hundred percent opinion on this. All right, again, Justin says, Dan, I've read the 48 days book twice, felt led to become a high school teacher. I'm finding it extremely hard to get into education because of the lack of educational funding and layoffs. I don't want to take out any more loans for my credentials. What should I do? Thanks, Justin. All right, now what does that mean to feel led? Now we're going to talk about this in a pretty generic kind of way. We're not going to couch this just as American Christianity. But let's just say that whatever, wherever you are, you feel led, you feel a calling, you feel a destiny, a pull, a mission toward doing something. Here's what I think it ought to include. I think feeling led ought to include three components. You've heard me talk about them before. It ought to include your passion. Yes, what you really are drawn to, what makes your heart sing. It ought to include your talent, something you're already really proven to do well, perhaps better than anybody else. But thirdly, it ought to include an economic model. Now, here's what I see happen a lot of times. A lot of people feel led to go back to graduate school when they can't find a job. I mean, who's going to fault you if you go back to graduate school? A socially acceptable way to procrastinate, hang out. Doesn't matter if you borrow money. Everybody expects that. You don't really have to confront reality out here. Now, I know, yeah, they're a good, I mean, I, I believe me, I've gone back to school multiple times for different level degrees and love the process. But, but I really can say I never did it as a way to escape what else I was doing. I never did it. I never went back to got, and got graduate degrees without having some form of generating income to take care of my family at the same time anyway, and did not go into debt in getting in doing my master's or doctoral work. A lot of people feel led to go into some kind of ministry, you know, after 14 months of searching for a job and not finding one, oh, they wake up and, oh, gee, God's calling me into ministry. Now, I want other people to give me money because I haven't been able to figure out how to make it on my own. Now, I know I'm going to be kind of harsh on this issue of feeling led, but, you know, feeling led, it's not enough to just have a warm fuzzy about the good you could do or how humanitarian or how godly something is. You still have to be responsible economically. You have to address that. And I see so many people walk down this lane and then six months later they're, you know, they're ticked off at God because they're bankrupt and the families left them because they thought they were led. No, they were, they didn't have a realistic model. 
I mean, even if you feel led, you have to have a realistic model. So if you feel led to go into something that doesn't pay and you can do that without going into debt and you have the full support of your spouse, then fine. I mean, go to, go to Haiti and live in a tent and help the people there. But if you, but, but I don't think you have the option to feel led to do that. If you have a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt and your wife is screaming that she doesn't want to leave the comforts in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, I know I'm going to get flack on that. I know I'm going to get pushback from some of you ultra spiritual people out there who say, well, if God leads you to do something, it defies all common sense. You just turn off your brain and you just go do it. Well, I beg to differ. I've seen too many heartache come out of that. I think you have to have a responsible plan to accompany your being led. Well, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to the 48 Days Online radio show, where each week we take your tough, tough, real questions, unpack them, see if we can figure out how we can make sense out of them and go to higher levels of success, things that will help all of us do that. We want to help you find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. If you got a question, be happy to entertain it for an upcoming show. Just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, you'll see a little button pop up there where you can submit your question. Just shoot it on in. Be delighted to entertain that. Ron from Fort Collins says, Dan, just wanted to thank you. I've been listening to your podcast for five years. I've learned much from you and the resources you've recommended. Five years ago, I was working in an okay job, but wishing I could make more money so my wife could stay home. I've tried a few things since then. Went through coaching, tried blogging, flirted with podcasting, applied myself in my previous job, and so on. Through it all, I learned much about myself and what type of work would fit me best. Earlier this year, I reread 48 Days and used those principles to find a great job making 60% more than I previously made. Now I'm in six figures, utilizing my strengths and not fighting my weaknesses anymore. I absolutely love it, and my wife loves being at home. Thanks for your work and materials. It has really changed our lives. Well, thank you, Ron, for that, that comment. I'm looking back here. You don't see how old you are, but you know, I commented earlier, you know, what do you say to a 25 year old who's tried a bunch, different bunch of things? You say, enjoy the process, dude. You know, you're learning, you're getting closer to what it is. that's going to make sense. And you describe doing exactly that. All these different resources. You obviously were a student, a seeker, and that's how you get better at doing things. That's how you get closer at refining, defining and discovering what it is that you really do well what it is that's going to make you have work that is meaningful and purposeful and profitable. And I got to always throw that in there because so many people assume that if you move toward something, the more that you move toward what you love, the more you reduce your income. And it just boggles my mind when, when people pose that kind of dichotomy because it's an artificial dichotomy Common sense ought to tell us that it ought to work the other way. I mean, is it, do you put your heart into work when you really hate it? Does it really tap into your best talents? Does it release the very best that God has put into you in doing work that you hate? No, none of those, all those things are capped, snuffed, dumbed down, constricted, restrained. I need to pull out my thesaurus here for all the words I want to add in there. There's no advantage in doing work that you love at all, work that you hate at all. It's in doing work that you love, that you release your very best. You find what it is that you do best that makes a contribution to the world. 
go on from there. <clears throat> this one comes from Arlena, who says, uh, from Falls Church, Virginia, I know you said not to make either or decisions, but I just don't want to work at my job any longer. I have looked internally and externally to do different work. I haven't found anything yet. I just don't want to be in that environment any longer. It's stealing away my soul and impacting my confidence and ability to find something new. I need to get out of there. And I've run out of patience to just suffer through it until I can find new work. I've suffered enough. I'm at the end of it. Arlena, I still don't see that you're forced into an either or. Now, what you're implying here is that either you stay in this mess that you described that's stealing away your soul and impacting your confidence, or you you know, walk out and then don't have a job. No, no, just be focused and intense about your job search. Now, sometimes I'm going to provide a caveat here. My encouragement always would be to find a job while you're still working, do the job search. You're in a position of strength. You know, you're going to have more optimism because you are currently creating a paycheck and so on. I think that's the ideal. Are there times when a person is just so bogged down that they can't think clearly, their creativity is zapped, and perhaps they need some kind of a break. Yes, I think that's true. If you can carve out some kind of a transition break for yourself, then by all means do that. I mean, if you can get to the end of the lease in your apartment or whatever situation you have to be in and and go live with your mom and dad for three months or go stay at a friend's house for a month, where you can just kind of clear your mind and get your creativity back. But there ought to be a deadline to that, either one of those that I described, frankly. Don't let that be an ongoing kind of thing. But if you can carve that out, then absolutely do that. I'm working with a lady right now. She's, she makes about $175,000 a year. Yeah, she's concerned about losing that income, but she is so burden down she's so exhausted so depleted so sick most of the time that i don't think she really can think clearly that she can tap into her best creativity unfortunately her husband does well and he's very supportive of her taking a break and i'm saying take a break yes i know it defies what i teach most of the time you know let's figure out a transition plan here and what you're going to be doing next But in her situation, she has the cushion there. She has a net that she can exercise. It's just her own sense of responsibility that's keeping her being driven so hard. I'm saying, hey, give yourself a break. Take a break. Take 30 days where you don't do anything. And even if we don't have a plan clearly mapped out for what you're going to do, give yourself the break. So if you can do that, then by all means, you know, give yourself a break. Yeah, you don't have to just hammer through. Mark from... Houston says, Dan, can you please speak to the average range of earnings for a successful coaching business? Yes, I certainly can. Statistics show us that 95% of coaches never make more than $40,000 a year. Now, actually, there are some more people grouped in that same statistic. 95% of coaches don't make more than $40,000 a year. You know what? 95% of speakers don't make more than $40,000 a year. 95% of authors don't make more than $40,000 a year. We could go on with some other kind of things, probably artists we could put in there, and geez, probably musicians if we really lumped them all together. 
But here's the deal. Let's just address coaching. That's what you asked me about. I'm going to address coaching. Can you please speak to the average range of earnings for successful coaching business? I think that it calls in question the credibility of a coach if the coach is not making more than $40,000 a year. Now, here's why. Let me frame that a little bit. If you want to be a coach and you want to work with welfare moms, that's what you want to do. You don't really need you know, more income than that. Your spouse you know, makes $100,000, so you have the option to do something, and you choose to work with that particular segment of society. You're going to work with welfare moms because your mom was a welfare mom. You saw how she struggled all her life, and you have a heart to help these ladies get off welfare and into something else. So you choose to do that then I think that's fine. You're probably not going to make more than $40,000 a year. And with the clientele that you're working with, that's okay. But if you want to position yourself as a coach where you want to work with high achievers and you want to help people think big and get unstuck and break through limits and be their very best, then I think you damage your credibility if you're making $40,000 a year. I think if people did a little research on you, they would question you being the person they want to work with. Now, I know we can get caught up in a whole lot of generalities here, but if I'm going to work with a real estate agent and we're going to be looking at you know nice homes, I really want that real estate agent to be living in a nice home, to speak to me knowledgeably about that. If I'm going to be going to an investment advisor, financial counselor to talk about how to manage wealth, maximize your earnings and, you know, do what um, politicians do to get your money offshore legally, but to protect your assets, I want somebody who's doing very well financially. I'm not going to really trust Somebody who pulls up at the back of the building, you know, a 1967 Volkswagen with no air conditioning because he can't afford a better car. I know, again, I'm making some generalities here, but I'm saying that most people, when they're looking for a coach, it's not unrealistic to look for somebody who is doing well themselves. I mean, this goes into a whole lot of areas. I mean, I know a whole lot of people who are marriage counselors who are in their third marriage. And I'm thinking, uh, what's up with that? How do you do that? I mean, it's like an overweight doctor talking to you about losing weight. Well, he may have some head knowledge, but there seems to be a lack of connection there. So that being said, what do you want to, what do you do if you want to be a coach but you know that 95% of them never make more than $40,000 and that really doesn't set too well with you. Figure out how to be in the 5%. It's not that difficult. It really isn't. I mean, most coaches, well, as an example, the kind of things that we present in our coaching with excellence event, and we've got one of those coming up September 13th and 14th is the next one and the last one this year. 
what we go through is how to leverage your intellectual expertise. So if you really understand how to be a, a health and fitness coach, as an example, right, that's a really easy one to work with. Any of them are, but this is a really easy one. So you're a health and fitness coach. You can work with people and show them how to really increase their health and fitness. It may be difficult to line up people eight hours a day, five days a week who are going to pay you $100 an hour to do that. I mean, it'd be unrealistic to even expect that. I mean, you can expect to meet with people maybe 20 or 25 hours a week tops as a coach. But are there ways you can take your intellectual expertise and package it so that it creates other revenue? Absolutely. I mean, what if you did? Now, I'm a, I'm a career coach. So as a career coach, I'm going to charge X number of dollars. Well, let's just say, let, let's just do some, uh, a quick math thing here. Um, so let's say that it's $100 an hour. So in eight hours, I'm going to generate $800. All right. Now, we have been doing some eight hours with Dan which is a coaching process. And in that process, we go through the principles that I go through in the Eagles club, teaching people how to find their best, how to create a clear focus, how to apply that either in finding a job or doing something non-traditional or creative. We know right or wrong. We just figure out how to do that. But we have people go through that. So we have people in a group that go through that. And we just did a group. And frankly, I'm not sure how many people were in there, but I know the, the previous one, I've already got the figures on that. There were 53 people in that group. So 53 people who rather than paying $800 to me paid 269. So it's a much lower fee. And actually the fee that I have for eight hours is, is much higher than $800, but we just use that as kind of a, a benchmark here. So they got into this program, Eight Hours with Dan. So they were part of this group, 53 people paid $269 each to be part of the Eight Hours with Me where I did group coaching like that. Well, that's not $800. It's $14,257 for that. Could you do that as that kind of coaching, as a health and fitness coach? Sure. Could you do a workshop at the local Whole Foods store like some friends of ours here do as health and fitness coaches? Sure. Could you put together a manual that has two audio CDs in there with audio kind of reminders as to what to do to stay in great shape and you sell that in a package for $197? Sure. Could you write a little book? Could you do an ebook that you sell for $17 and maybe have a thousand people? that access that give it a great title a great cover you put that out there that's the way that you explode your earnings as a coach it doesn't mean that now you have a captive on people just showing up and so everybody you know it's lining up at the door that may never happen that's hard to do even geographically if you're working in any kind of a specialized niche but you can take your expertise and expand it hey that that's what we're going to teach you I'll, I'll just i'll put in a plug for coaching with excellence here while i'm on the topic Coaching with Excellence, September 13th and 14th, those are exactly the kind of things that I walk you through. The second day of that on the 14th, which is a Friday, we'll be going through 48 ways that you can fill your schedule. 48 days, 48 ways to market what you do to create extraordinary kind of income. 
And believe me, I want you to leave here with a plan to not make $40,000 a year. Now, again, if you you would, you would be in a minority because of some particular kind of area of focus you decided to do. But most people come with the expectation that they're going to leave with a plan to make $100,000 next year. So if you want to make $100,000 in coaching in 2013, come to our event. Come check it out. If you don't think it can be done, if you think I'm blowing smoke, tell me at the end of the conference, I'll write you a check for your registration feedback. I mean, we just go through it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not just guessing. I mean, obviously I've been coaching for 20 years and, um, I would not be real happy making $40,000 a year. I'll just leave it at that. I I would uh, not be a happy camper at that level. Um, Again, this is not just about being materialistic or greedy, but if it's about releasing the best that you have, you ought to be able to set your sights on anything that you want and then create a plan to make that happen. Well, if you got, well I've, got, I've got another question. This is probably going to be the last one I get to today from Chris. And, and this, I can't get away from these money questions today. Is it smart to take a position making less money if it makes you happy? And if it makes you happy and you have put together how to integrate your talents, your passion, and you have an economic model for that, as I talked about earlier, absolutely do it. I mean, I, I, if, you, if it makes you happy, but, but there's also likely a connection here. And this is where we get hung up on this thing about assuming that moving towards something we love or something makes us happy, we're going to ultimately give up money. What, what is money? I mean, money is not something you tricked or conned somebody into giving you. I mean, I, when, when my good friend Rabbi Daniel Lappin is asked, does God want us to be rich? You know what he tells people? He says, God wants us to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others. Now, what do you think happens when you're obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others? You know what happens? Money shows up in multiple ways. In his book, Thou Shall Prosper, Rabbi Lappin points out that money is a testament to your having served another human being. He says, having money is not shameful. It's a certificate of good performance granted to you by your grateful fellow citizens. Now, what does that mean then if we move to something where we're making less money? Now, again, I know I'm going to get flack for this. This this is a hot potato day, but it usually means you're serving fewer people or you're serving less because when you're serving more, money seems to be connected with that. If you find ways to serve people more, more money will show up. I know, you know, too many people you know, shun this idea of making money as evil and believe that good can only be done by nonprofits. And unfortunately, what happens is then a whole lot of you know, good individuals self-righteously bury themselves in nonprofit organizations and end up spending 90% of their time begging for money in lieu of working on the cause that they claim to be passionate about. I mean, just don't get caught up in this delusion that being destitute is a necessary framework for helping the world. In fact, I think the opposite is true. Now we know, you know, money is like fire. And again, coming from my Amish Mennonite roots, man, oh man, we were scared to death of money. We, we knew money took you directly toward hell. 
mean, that seemed to be the, the common theology. Money's like fire. It can burn you and leave you disfigured or it can leave you warm and safe. When we're serving others in the area of our greatest joy, the world will become a better place. And just like out of the Old Testament, we will be blessed to be a blessing. That's the way it works. Man, I got a whole lot of those principles and wisdom meets passion. I hope you join us in that journey of spreading the word about wisdom meets passion. Check us out. Check out the coaching with excellence. We talked about that. The coaching with excellence. You can find information about that under the live events link at 48days.com. Get involved in the 48days.net community. A whole lot of people there linking arms, sharing ideas, giving advice and help to each other. So they're going to higher levels of success. Hey, it's not all about money, trust me, but money shows up when you're having fun and doing work that you love. So continue on this process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, productive, and profitable. Don't settle for less.